This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. A massively diverse group of organisms, fungi support and sustain nearly all living systems. Fungi throw our concepts of individuality and even intelligence into question. They can change our minds, heal our bodies, and even help us remediate environmental disasters. By examining fungi on their own terms, we are changing our understanding of how life works. In this episode, Merlin Sheldrake, biologist and author of the best-selling book, Entangled Life, is joined by CIIS professor of ecology and religion, Elizabeth Allison, for an illuminating conversation about the ways these extraordinary organisms, and our relationships with them, change our understanding of the planet on which we live, and the ways that we think, feel, and behave. This episode was recorded during a live online event on May 5th, 2023. You can also watch it on the CIIS Public Programs YouTube channel. A transcript is available at ciispod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Hi, Merlin. It's such a pleasure to talk with you today. I first read this book um, in the dark days of the pandemic back in 2020 when it first came out. And everyone here in San Francisco was baking sourdough bread. And I just realized when I reread this book that our little fungi friends were helping us through the pandemic. But as you point out in the book, there's such a variety in fungi um, from some of the largest organisms to some of the smallest. So first of all, what are fungi? Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to be chatting. And um, thanks to anyone who's taken the time to to be here today with us. Um, fungi are a kingdom of life. So that's as, ca- a big, uh, as broad and busy a category as animals or plants. So there's lots of ways to be a fungus. Um, they're a kingdom of life that has not had a kingdom's worth of attention. Um, I think that's important, and I think that's a theme that we'll keep um, running through our, our conversation. But what fungi are, um, are organisms that, like animals, have to uh, find food in the world uh, and digest it. So they're not like plants which can photosynthesize. So fungi can't make their own energy from sunlight and carbon dioxide. So they have to find food in the world, they have to digest that food, um, but they um, they tend not to be like animals, which locomote, uh, can move around a lot of the time. Um, and fungi are more like plants in, in the sense that they tend to grow around rather than move around. Um, most fungi live their lives not as mushrooms, uh, but as mycelial networks, which are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. So when we, a lot of our conversation about fungi, when we say the word fungi, what we're really talking about is a a network organism, a network of tubes that's constantly remodeling itself. Um, And that's a sort of good image to have in mind, if it's possible to have that kind of an image in mind, um, as we we go about our conversations. Great, thank you. And and yeah, that that network idea is so fascinating to me. In in the subtitle of your book, you talk about how fungi make our worlds and shape our minds. And it seems throughout the book that um, fungi really challenge our categories. Um, and so you're saying they're they're seeking out food, but they don't really move around like animals. And, and I feel like the common conception, though, is that they're more like plants because they just stay in one place. But, but they're in, I mean, and then you just said, they're another, cat, they're another category, another kingdom. Um, so how do fungi sort of disrupt our categories, our standard categories that we think about? Well, thanks for that question. I, I always feel that um, 
thinking about fungi makes the world look different. And one of the reasons is that they confuse many of our categories. Um, some of these categories are things that we use every day. Uh, we live in societies which take them for granted, which indeed are built on these categories, like individuality, um, autonomy, independence. Um, we're so used to, in, in modern um, post-industrial uh, human cultures, thinking about um, neatly bounded individuals. You know, we have to have neatly bounded individuals in order to get a passport, in order to fill out a tax return, in order to be an identifiable citizen in um, uh, society. Um, but when you look at the living world, um, it becomes clear that individuality is not so much a natural fact, but more a category that depends on your point of view. Um, fungi make questions of individuality in so many ways. Um, their networks, their branching, fusing networks, these mycelial networks, you can take a fragment of a network and it could turn into an entirely new organism. It'd be a bit like taking a, a bit of your hair or a, a, um, a tiny fragment of your skin and growing a whole new you. Um, you could then take that new fungus and, and introduce it to the, the parent fungus, or that wouldn't strictly be a parent because it's not a new generation. Uh, and those two networks would fuse with each other fine and just become uh, a new functional um, individual. Um, so this is the kind of behavior that they can, that, that confuses individuality. Um, there are other ways. Um, intelligence is another one. You know, plants confuse intelligence too. I think, I think when we really um, sit with uh, and inquire into the lives of, of any kind of other organism, we, we find that this question of intelligence is confused because the concept of intelligence is rooted in the cognitive sciences, which took the human mind, uh, the human brain and human mind to be the center of their inquiry. Um, and so all organisms were judged uh, according to their relative position in human-style intelligence tests, like recognizing yourself in a mirror. Um, but of course, there are so many ways to be alive. There are so many ways to rise to the challenge of living. Uh, all organisms are confronted with innumerable problems they have to solve, innumerable variability they have to adapt to. Uh, fungi are no different. Um, but they are really, um, I think they make this intelligence question into a really uh, strong and pointy question. Um, when you watch a fungus navigating a labyrinth, for example, and this is something that researchers do, um, you can create little microscopic labyrinths and let fungal networks grow through the labyrinth. They can find the shortest path between the entrance and the exit, um, a bit like slime molds can. Slime molds have become poster organisms for brainless problem solving, but fungi um, do this as well. And if you watch a fungus going about this, this labyrinth, when it's confronts, confronted with a forked path, it it doesn't have to choose one or the other paths. It can branch and take both routes um, and later on assess um, which is the more efficient route through the, the labyrinth. So intelligence is another category that, that fungi confuse for us. Um, there are so many more, um, but these, these, these are two that, that I play with a lot. Individuality and intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so can you give some other examples of fungal intelligence? It's such an intriguing concept and, and definitely expands, um, yeah, expands how we think about intelligence. Um, and, and how does it change how we think about intelligence? So some background I think it's important to mention is that this, this notion of intelligence is undergoing a, a, a big revision within the biological sciences from lots of points of view, from people studying animals, from people studying plants, from people studying fungi and, um, and bacteria even um, and other microbes. Um, because this, it was severely, this concept was severely in need of a, a, an update. Um, and so these days, uh, intelligence is variously defined. Um, and, and these definitions can take um, you know, all sorts of shapes, uh, but the, they usually have in common some traits like uh, being able to solve problems, being able to adapt to changes, um, being able to uh, make decisions in the organism's way, um, not necessarily in the way we do, but in the organism's way, um, make decisions between alternative uh, courses of action. Um, so um, within these broader, these deepened and expanded definitions of intelligence, it becomes clear that actually to be alive, one has to be intelligent to some degree. And actually, it's more um, interesting to ask, you know, to what degree is an organism intelligent rather than is an organism intelligent? Uh, and what kinds of intelligent behavior does this organism display? Um, so with fungi, um, a good place to look um, is to just, when we, when we look twice at many of the things that we um, many of the uh, ways they live their life. Um, so 
mycorrhizal fungi are a type of fungus that I like to study, and maybe we'll come on to that later. They, um, they live their life in and around plant roots um, in a kind of trade relationship where the plants supply the fungus with sugars and fats, so energy-containing carbon compounds. The fungus supplies the plant with minerals, um, mineral nutrients that it's found in the soil, like nitrogen or phosphorus. And they have a kind of trading relationship. It's a very ancient relationship. It goes back to the beginnings of um, macroscopic life on land. And, um, and almost all plants form relationships with these fungi. So if we think about life as one of these fungi for a moment, um, it could be a network that sprawls over tens of meters. Um, it has uh, millions, billions perhaps, of growing tips um, all foraging around in the labyrinthine environment in the soil. Um, you have, it could be connected to multiple plants, engaged in different kinds of trading relationship with different plants, um, and different types of dynamics of trade in, with the same plant, but at different parts of the plant root system. Um, all of this going on um, and at the same time. So it's, it's trading with lots of plant partners. It's integrating information from, from over meters, square meters, um, it's every growing tip is somehow informed by every other growing tip in the network. Um, there are intricately regulated flows moving through these networks. Substances are passing around these networks in uh, complicated ways that we're only just beginning to uh, observe, let alone understand. Um, there are diff these are sensing, this fungus is a sensing body. It's, it's sensitive to um, temperature, to any number of chemicals, to um, uh, gravity, pressure, um, acidity. Um, moisture, so many different kinds of senses it has. And these different senses, um, these sensory data streams are being funneled through the network and integrated somehow so that the fungus can um, assess in its way um, these data streams and, and act accordingly, informed by what's going on around it. So this is a kind of moment-to-moment -moment challenge that a fungus would face. And this is not an unusual day for this fungus. This is just what it's doing um, more or less all the time. Um, and so that's the kind of intelligent behavior that it has, you know, the intelligence to, to regulate itself in the face of these uh, innumerable variables, these innumerable biological partners, uh, very intimate partners, um, and in constantly changing uh, and heterogeneous environment. It sounds like a very distributed intelligence throughout, yeah. And... Um, and very responsive. I mean, when you describe that sort of intelligence, then I actually wonder if humans are very intelligent because we are more bounded. Um, and, um, and you described so many different uh, variables that the fungus is responding to uh, in, uh, all the time. Um, and, but I want to go back to something that you said initially. You said intelligence is being reassessed in, in plants and animals. And you said even in bacteria. So are you suggesting intelligence is everywhere throughout life? I, I have a lot of time for the view that, that intelligent, intelligence is a, a, a fundamental feature of, of life, that to be alive, one has to have some degree of intelligence. Uh, it, might be, um, it might be one sort of intelligence, not another sort of intelligence uh, that manifests in different kinds of intelligent behaviors. But um, and some might be much more sophisticated um, intelligent behaviors than others. Um, but, but if we think, I like thinking about intelligence as, as decision-making, as problem-solving, as adapting, um, and, and all organisms to some degree do this. So yes, I, I, I would say, um, in my view, um, that, um, that some degree of intelligence is, is required to be a living organism. Which does really sort of challenge the hierarchy of humanity as a sort of apex of of life um, yeah i mean we're locked in this kind of species narcissism that we've inherited um and it's you know it's come cascading down the generations for quite a long time and i think it's really about time that we we loosen the grip of that story um i mean it's just so much more fun to to live in a world where we're not um the smartest um and the best uh, i don't really want to live in that story um, I have so much fun when I step out of that story and, and, and it's like you know, a sort of cold, clammy pair of like swimming shorts that you don't really want to get back into it. It's, um, yeah, happy to leave it behind. I not only because it's, it's not just more fun, so it's, it's also hugely dangerous. Um, so, to, to, so, so yeah, so I think we benefit in many ways by, by moving beyond that, by evolving. 
I definitely got the sense that uh, fungi are running the world, perhaps more than we are. Um, and, and you you sort of, as you said, sort of subvert the dominant paradigm, um, try to take, it seems, try to take a fungal view here. Um, but I, is that your sense? Is is are like are fungi sort of more in charge? I mean, they're well. So we should we should talk about Michael Rizo fungi because you just mentioned them, and um, they're they're everywhere under our feet, right? Do you want to explain what they are and and how they contribute to forests and plants? Mm. For sure, yeah. So, um. So about 500 million years ago, when plants were, the ancestors of plants were freshwater algae, so kind of puddles of photosynthetic tissue uh, floating in the nutrient soup in rivers and lakes. Um, and they were making the energy from sunlight and carbon dioxide. They were absorbing nutrients from the nutrient soup that they're floating in. And when they started to wash up on these soggy shores, they faced all sorts of new challenges. And uh, foremost among those challenges was how do they acquire the nutrients they need um, from this complex labyrinthine soil type um, substrate. And um, they're not great rangers in this kind of wilderness. They're used to you know, soaking in the, in the nutrient soup. Um, fungi are great rangers in this kind of complex microenvironment. So it seems that at this very earliest moment of life on land for plants, um, they struck up a relationship with fungi, and these fungi behaved as their root systems, allowing them to um, to reach down through the fungus, a kind of prosthesis, a living prosthesis, into the complex environment of the soil, acquiring water, acquiring nutrients, um, and developing a kind of trailing relationship. So this um, seems to be, uh, certainly plants had fungal relationships for tens of millions of years before they evolved roots. So these fungal relationships are a more fundamental part of planthood than roots, than wood, than leaves, uh, fruit, flowers, so many things that we think of uh, as um, characteristically planty. Um, so fast forward to now, uh, and almost all plants still depend on these fungi that live in and around their roots um, and do a similar kind of thing. Um, there are also fungi that live in plant tissues, in leaves, in the stem. Um, plant life is inseparable from fungal life. In fact, when you look at a plant, what you're looking at is the outcome of a braided history of association. It's what you see is um, an alga that has evolved to farm fungi and fungi that have evolved to farm algae. Um, and you're seeing that all in this body that we call a plant. And um, I mean, this, for me, this is, is really profound. It changes, it, it's a kind of parable about how evolution works. Evolution is always evolution with evolution by association. Um, symbiosis is a non-negligible, a non-negotiable feature of life. Um, and so, um, so yes, yeah, so, so, so the life around us, the life that sustains us um, is, is part fungus. And, and these relationships have changed the um, changed climate in the past. They've caused global cooling. Um, they've created geological layers. Um, they've done so many things which under the big grand um, sweep of um, eons. Um, so we're just a tiny flash in the pan here. So if we want to think about like human life in relation to fungal life, then it, it's kind of incomparable. You know, we've been around for such a short time. Uh, fungi have been around busily evolving for over a billion years. Um, so whether they run the show, I, I mean, they, they have a huge influence on the show. I'd say that they're pretty important producers um, in the show, uh, frequently um, directors. Um, maybe sometimes casting agents and actors and chorus members and audience as well. Um, but um, obviously it takes all sorts to make a biosphere. Uh, so I wouldn't want to um, say that they were the ones in charge. Um, although I often talk like that because I really am really into them. <laughs> well, their prevalence um, as you make, very clear in, in the book, um, just it, it does suggest that they're well, and and you just spoke about how they're knitting things together, how they're they're weaving together, um, even even plants like weaving into the ground, basically the the first um, roots of plants. Um, so we can't really think about plants without fungi, right? Yeah. Um, 
And and yet it seems like oh, there's there's so many threads I want to follow, <laughs> like like a fungal network, I suppose. Um, and um, and and yet you talk about how um, you know we there's uh, departments of botany and there's departments of zoology, but there aren't that many departments of mycology. Why is that if they're so um, important to life? So this really is an on-running theme through any conversation about fungi. You know, you run into the mystery pretty fast. Now, you're two steps away from a oh, we don't know. Um, fungi are understudied. They're underrepresented in academic courses. They're barely represented in most school curricula. Um, and um, there are a few reasons for this. Uh, one is that there is a taxonomic reason. They were only delimited as a, a separate kingdom of life in the late 60s. So it's only in the late 60s that they won their independence. Um, and um, that meant that before this, fungi were thought of as a kind of lower plant, um, and they were studied in unglamorous corners of botany departments. Um, and... So there's a kind of disciplinary bias that's entrenched because of this. There just hasn't been you know, the same amount of professorships or um, any kind of, or, or students or research funds or any, or any of the things that create um, modern scientific knowledge. And, um, and part of this is because they're, they're weird. You know, they, they do things so differently, so strangely. They live most of their lives out of the reach of our immediate senses. Um, you know, they're embedded within whatever they're eating. They're hard to access. And so a lot of the ways that, that this has changed, uh, that our thinking about fungi has changed, has been through technological advances and new you know, analytical techniques that grant us access to fungal lives in ways that we didn't have access before. And so this is something that's developing over time, still very fast moving. Um, and so uh, part of the reason is taxonomic, part of the reason is techn technological, that we simply know more than we did. Um, and... Um, and I think there are lots of reasons why we're seeing a kind of surge of interest in fungi right now. You know, these, these, this is in a moment of ecological crisis and, and fungi are, are kind of ecological poster organisms. They embody the basic principle of ecology. They are form connections between organisms. They're a kind of embodied relationship. Um, and they really, I think, speak to this moment that we find ourselves in. But, um, and they're also networks. You know, we live in a kind of the network, there's a network zeitgeist, uh, kind of big time. Um, and since the, the web really kicked off in the late 90s and network thinking has permeated many, many aspects of human um, inquiry, um, network models, network, um, network thinking. Um, uh, you'd find it in so many different branches of, of academic discourse, for example. And so fungi, again, they're kind of poster organisms for network thinking. Um, uh, and so we're seeing that that change starting to happen um, now as, as, as people catch on to that. So there are reasons for the surge of interest now. There are reasons why they've been historically neglected. Um, and, um, and I think one of the reasons why it's so fascinating to be studying them now and talking about them now um, is because we have so many open questions. There are wide open questions wherever you look. Um, uh, and so I, I find a sense of excitement when... Um, when I'm confronted with open questions and, and when, whenever I talk to people about these things, um, they tend to find uh, a sense of excitement when confronted with the open questions. So there's also a blessing, I think, to the fact that we um, know relatively little about fungi is that we get to experience this time uh, of, of wild proliferating inquiry uh, into the mystery. Absolutely. It, it's stunning to me that it was only in the sixties that they were recognized as their own kingdom. I mean, I, I didn't know, but um, to to think that that recently there was that much that we didn't know about fungi, like that we didn't know they weren't plants, um, it is quite amazing. And it makes me think of, um, you know, these repeated claims of the end of history or the end of exploration, you know, we, we've discovered everything there is to discover. And yet there's this whole world that's going on at the same time time right now as us that that you're saying we know very little about and that is incredibly exciting um and yeah i think how thrilling to be in a field with so many open questions as far as even you know i don't know how how do these things live or what what are some of the open questions right now that are interesting to you i'm working with a wonderful team um in amsterdam and we are trying to understand just 
the basics of information transfer within mycorrhizal fungal networks. Um, how do they stay in touch with themselves? How do they process information? Um, how do they integrate different data streams? And so you have this amazing setup where we can look inside the um, fungal cells, inside these tubular cells, and watch the flows moving around in these networks. And watch in real time, you, know, you, see, you see a kind of, it's not like a, just a river that's flowing always in one direction, um, or like a you know, river of traffic uh, in, in, in these time lapses of Manhattan that you see. Um, but um, you can have a, a sort of a, a flow that's changing speed and it comes to a junction and then it goes up the chain and it goes up to the right side of the junction. And then it comes back and it goes up to the left side. Um, and then the whole thing changes direction again and then speeds up and then a bit branches off here. And it's completely um, non um, unpredictable uh, and, and with, with powerful non-random patterns um that we're starting to piece together and um, and it's really basic you know it's like how do they how do they communicate to the parts of different parts of themselves that there's lots of nutrients here rather than um over here where there's fewer nutrients how does that feed into their behavior with regard to their plant partner you know we're looking at radically simplified systems here in the lab but still these um the basic dynamics uh, of fungal communication eludes us um so this is really exciting um, really looking at fungal behavior and thinking, thinking of them as organisms that are behaving. Um, but the, really, the big, really big mysteries are, what are they doing outside in the bustling world, um, the wet, wild world, um, say in a tropical forest or any number of forests uh, or in just a, an, an old growth grassland or in a city park? You know, at any one moment, what is happening um, in just one of the fungi, one of the many, many fungi that will be living there. How is it interacting with the other fungi? How is it, um, how is it managing itself? You know, we can't just look through the layers of soil into a fungal network in the field and, and see what it's doing. Um, we have to use quite clumsy experimental approaches. You can measure transfers by using labeled chemicals that end up more here or more there. And those are powerful techniques. And um, there are various um, genetic techniques using DNA and RNA. But it's so it's so hard to access so what fungi are actually doing outside in the world at any one moment um we know very little about um we have we can do very very elegant extraordinarily skillful experiments in in, in labs and greenhouses and there are incredible fungal researchers doing this all the time you know it's a, a very amazing community of um dedicated and passionate um wise and um startlingly brilliant people doing this work and um, but it's still very difficult to extrapolate from a lab experiment to the bustling world out there uh, it's a problem that many biologists face in any discipline but um so these very basic questions um there are other questions about um there are so many things we don't know about their metabolisms now how do they they how do they ever see the chemical transformations that they ever see you know what is it they how do they um how do they develop enzymes that are able to accomplish certain chemical reactions at certain places in certain times? And um, why do some fungi do that and not others? Um, the nature of fungal evolution, you know, these, the, how these organisms have evolved, how they've evolved with other organisms, um, how certain abilities have ended up in some fungal lineages and not others. Um, these are all uh, lots of um, big questions there as well. Um, and there's all the ways that we can partner with fungi, you know, to adapt to life on a damaged planet. So there's all sorts of questions about um, how can we um, work with them? Um, how are there ways that we can you know, try and um, move around some of our, our pressing problems by involving fungi in our lives somehow? Right. Yeah. In uh, grad school, I shared an office with a, a grad student who was trying to develop some forms of mycoremediation um, for oil spills. Um, I, I don't know how far that moved forward, but it does seem like there's some um, potential, right? That like fungi will eat lots of different things, right? And will they, I, I, but can we really call on them to save us or should we save ourselves? <laughs> I mean, the saving, the saving narrative, I, I don't know how helpful it is to you know this, this, this sort of salvation narrative. Um, I mean, I can see why we think that way. It's deeply embedded in lots of the major myth structures that have brought us to this moment. But um, 
I certainly think that we can we can look at how organisms evolve over time, and in times of crisis, symbiotic relationships evolve. You know, the symbiosis is not an option. We're always living with, evolving with, being with, um, and in many of the great turbulent moments, um, or in some of the toughest um, liminal zones, the most remarkable associations have come, have have arisen and, and have stuck together. Um, Lynn Margulis, the great biologist of symbiosis describes the long-lasting intimacy of strangers, their relationships that form in times of crisis uh, or to solve certain pressing problems, enable new possibilities, um, and then remain. Um, so this is a time of crisis. Um, and are there ways that we can form new types of relationship um, within human cultures too? Like, so uh, different cultures, different academic disciplines, if one's an academic, um, different age groups, just how can we come together in new ways um, interdisciplinarity being a superpower to um, form new kinds of structures and organizations and ways of being together that help us adapt um, to creatively um, to these challenges and how can we do that with other organisms and, and I think fungi form part of that story so I wouldn't say that they there are saviors um, there are so many problems that fungi cause for us you know there are endless um, problems they cause there are fungal diseases um, rising um, incidents of, of fungal diseases we're creating conditions for the fungal evolution new evolution of fungal pests um, and um, fungi will you know there's any number of problems that they'll cause for us and and, and these have been much discussed so they're definitely not our saviors um, but I think there are many ways that we can partner with fungi um, to solve problems um, and I think it's actually hard to imagine a future. I mean, the fungi have been so much part of our lives and cultures and, and societies for such an unknowably long time. You know, we, we live in a fungal world and uh, uh, whether or not we think about it. So our future, it will be at least as fungal as the past. And perhaps we can make it a little more con consciously um, fungal um, and, um, yeah, and, 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 and deal with some of our, um, some of our problems. It does seem like, I appreciate your um, caution around the salvation narrative, um, because certainly there's a lot of, of caveats there. It does seem like this recent um, knowledge and exploration of fungi and, and awareness, and, and then, as you said, the technological advancements that allow us to study them more carefully and closely, um, it does seem like maybe it's um, opening up new ways of thinking about the world and new ways of being in the world. So you talked about the network metaphor, um, which is so prevalent now, of course, in, in this internet age. And, um, and you talked about fungi being like the, the sort of original networkers or, or, um, web. Um, and, and so I was thinking about whether, um, which way the metaphor goes, you know, is it a technological metaphor that we're applying to fungal networks or is it um, an organic net a metaphor from the fungi that we're then applying to our technology? So I'm curious about your thoughts on that. But in either case, it seems to um, the network metaphor or web metaphor seems to give us new ways of, of thinking about um, back to the beginning about individuality, autonomy, interconnection. Um, responsibility and so on, which could be helpful in this time. What do you think? Yeah. So which way does the, the arrow go in the metaphor? It's, it's such a tangle, isn't it? I think it often goes both ways at once. And um, and certainly, I mean, you talk to many cosmologists now and the way that the whole universe is conceived, this is a cosmic web, you know, the huge filaments of um, gas and galaxies joining galactic super super clusters um in in a kind of vast uh, network at the largest possible scale um so it's not just fungi that do networks networks seem to be a um a feature of the um of, of the reality that we inhabit and um but yeah, I mean, sometimes in specific instances, you can you can you can totally see a computer metaphor that's been applied to fungi. Like Wood Wide Web is a classic case of um, it's a helpful metaphor. You know, it makes vivid the idea of of, of plants and fungi living in in, in shared networks. Um, I use this term, um, and um, I think it can um, 
can be is vivid. It opens our eyes to to a kind of um, relationship that we might not otherwise have thought of, a kind of social networking. But at the same time, it's a, um, a ultimately a machine metaphor, um, and it is a metaphor that makes usually makes fungi uh, the kind of passive cables joining up trees. Um, it renders fungi quite passive, uh, and I think that's very far from the truth because um, fungi are um, busily, actively engaged in their lives. Um, they're far from passive cables linking up and rooted. So anyway, that's one case where you can see a, a computer metaphor applied to fungal life. Um, there are lots of aspects of network behavior that seem to be more organic than mechanistic. You know, networks can grow in interesting ways. There are kind of um, different ways of thinking about networks and analyzing them, which um, reveal them to be a kind of, um, to have organic emergent, um, well, organic-like um, emergent properties that um, we see in non-human uh, organizations. Um, so I don't think there's always a, a sort of sharp distinction between, um, between human and and, um, and non-human, but no, it's important to think about that. Um, it's important to think about that when we make sense of um, symbiotic relationships, you know, because the whole history of the study of symbiotic relationships has been fraught with um, metaphors, you know, from the very, uh, the, the, since um, 1869 or so, when, when um, lichens were being studied in, 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 and thought of as symbiotic organisms formed from the close relationship of fungi and algae. And, um, the relationship between masters and slaves, uh, men and women, the relationships between nations, um, uh, all sorts of um, human societal metaphors were applied to these intimate relationships. And then, and then those relationships were used to naturalize so to, to different kinds of human behavior. So, oh, we live in a um, uh, industrial capitalist society, um, unmitigated conflict and competition. This is a natural state of affairs. Look at these organisms over here doing their unmitigated conflict and competition. Or we live in a, a mutual aid, um, societies of sharing, um, of a, a, a socialist structure. Look over there. Look at these examples of, of animals um, doing mutual aid. So it's, it's such a convoluted process um, and, and actually a really fascinating one. It's one of the reasons why the, the history of the science of symbiosis is so um, so juicy, you know, because it's a, a sort of a prism through which our societal values is dispersed, um, and 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 we enter a kind of hall of mirrors and um, see that in all sorts of different directions. So that's a convoluted way to to to, to think about this question of which way the arrow points. Um, and um, I've actually forgotten what the next part of the question was. Uh, so, well, I'll just keep threading along. Um, uh, I, I really appreciate that um, point that our social metaphors then shape how we, what we observe in, in the world around us, right? And, and how we interpret it as much as um, the world around us providing metaphors for understanding human social life. And, and I think that um, idea is is often overlooked, right? It's sort of the, the naturalistic fallacies, like, oh, we see something in nature, therefore, you know, we, it, it, that, it must be the case, sort of forgetting about the interpretive lens that human society um, puts on it to describe what the relationship is. And I, when we were thinking about this idea of, of networks and interconnecting threads all, all throughout the cosmos, it, it occurred to me also that even in the human body, like the fascia, is the understudied um, connective tissue of the human body that I think also wasn't really known about until recent decades. And so at a lot of different levels, we're starting to perceive uh, this connective tissue that really was ignored for uh, for so many centuries of, of um, human scientific study. Um, and maybe it provides new metaphors. So I think what was um, arising, a question that was arising is, is what kind of new metaphors might we, might you be discovering in your relationships with fungi? I'm not even going to say your study of, but more of like a partnership with fungi, like what um, new metaphors might they be suggesting to you? Well, you know, one of the, one of the problems I have with um, sort of conventional ways of representing networks is that we tend to think of them a bit like how you'd sketch them on a piece of paper as um, entities joined with a line or a dotted line sometimes for and um but the idea that they're self-standing entities that can be joined with a dotted line um and 
um, it feels like the kind of thing we do in sort of in a recovery mode from years of reductive um, uh, experimental science where we sort of cut the world into little pieces and now we're trying to string it back together again because we're so drowning in detail and have lost sight of the big picture. And um, so let's just connect these different pieces together with a line connecting the different parts, the different components that have been separated somehow. Um, but really, it's these relationships are it's less like um, you know, two entities joined with a line. It's more like there's a picture by Escher with drawing hands, with one hand drawing the other hand, which is drawing the other hand at the same time. Um, it's a more co-creative process. There's a kind of um, shimmering um, relational field that sustains uh, and, and indeed is sort of almost ontologically prior to the existence of these entities in the first place. And I think that's a very profound shift in, in, in perspective. Um, and so I... I try to think as much as I can in, in that mode uh, of relationship not being something we stir in afterwards to help us recover from um, a reductive mindset, uh, but something which is, which is absolutely fundamental that gives rise to the very things we think of as entities in the first place. So a metaphor that I find really helpful for that that I find in the fungal world is that of lichens. Um, lichens, these symbiotic organisms, what you see, the body of the lichen that you see um, is emergent from any number of relationships between fungi, algae, bacteria. Um, there are more types of relationship within lichens being uncovered uh, by the month, more or less. But what you see is a form, often complex form, often very wild chemistry going on inside lichens, crazy colors, abilities to live in extreme environments, um, crazy abilities to digest certain compounds like um, or, or, or substances like rock. Uh, they, they devour rock, many lichens do. Um, but the individual partners, if you want to break the organism down into, the, into its parts, you know, the members of this lichen, they don't form a structure anything like what you see the lichen forming. Um, so it's a bit like the elements of hydrogen and oxygen coming together to make water, you know, two flammable gases creating water. Um, and it's totally sort of unexpected from first principles. And likewise in lichens, what you see is this, this wild product of relationship, a kind of non-linear um, explosion um, that out, happens out of these, these relationships. So, so the, the concept of a lichen, I find an enormously fertile metaphor um, for thinking about human relationships, for thinking about relationships we form with other organisms, for thinking about clusters of ideas. Anyway, any time that I try to think about networks in this more uh, co-constitutive way um lichens are uh, it's a metaphor that i write so I, that i reach for um there are others too but that's fine that's so great so i have a friend who studied lichens in grad school and uh, this is just a small joke um so she and i went to um an event and and she met someone new and and he said what do you do and she said i'm a lichenologist and he said that's cool. But what do you do? And she said, I'm a lichenologist. And he was like, but what do you study? And she said, I'm a lichenologist. He thought she was saying, I'm like an ologist. <laughs> and he thought it was too much California talk, like I'm like an ologist. Yeah, yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, I That's just, great. I had to drop that in. I just love this a phrase that you said, the shimmering ontological field and of um, this co-creative uh, capacity of fungi. And it made me think of um, some indigenous concepts, actually, that I've read about, like Deborah Bird Rose has an essay called The Shimmer, um, where she talks about in, uh, in Aboriginal Australian culture, um, there's this idea that when things are really alive, they have a shimmer to them. And it can also get dimmed if for, you know, various negative things happen um, to that livingness. And um, so I wonder if um, I wonder if there's a parallel there, if you've observed the shimmer in your field studies um, or what more you have to say about that. Hmm. Yes, well, I certainly think that many of these concepts that we're discussing are, you know, in, in the modern sciences, they're often talked about as uh, discoveries. Um, but I think it's more remembering, you know, I think these are things, these are ideas, you know, the, the idea of we live in an intimate, reciprocal you know, web of relations. And this is, I think, 
something that humans have known for a very long time in different parts of the world and different traditional knowledge systems. And, and that it's in some sense, um, modern biology is catching up um, or at least unforgetting. Um, and um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so I think that's, that's, that's a key point that, that yeah, this is, this isn't, of much of this isn't really new in principle. Um, there are new um, stories, there are new findings about certain organisms and the way they relate. But I think the bigger picture that it's revealing is, is not a, a new understanding, but a, um, a welcome remembering uh, of a very ancient understanding. Um, but yeah, the shimmer is, um, I mean, so I think about, so this fields of relation, you know, if I think about it as a field because it, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, it's hard to picture. We're so used to thinking in terms of individuals, it's hard to think about how these individuals um, what their relationship actually looks like. Um, but of course their relationship looks like both of, if you're talking at two partners, looks like both of them. Um, and if you think about time, um, if you think about these organisms as living on the sort of growing front of the present moment, but with evolutionary histories, stretching in like roots, tangling deep into the past. And if you think about the roots of these two entities, um, these two humans, it could be, it could be two, a human and a dog or a human and a cat. You think about the, the roots of these entities stretching back through the through past, tangling around each other, you know, in this big braided kind of stream of, of togetherness. Um, and so the, what you're seeing is the, just the, the growing tip um, of, a, 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 of a relationship. And, um, and, so, um, and, the, and so, yeah, so I like to think about organisms as processes like that rather than things. And, and, and when I think about organisms as processes, you know, we, we, we were processes, we, you're, you're, the stuff that makes up your body is today is, is not the same stuff that made up your body uh, uh, a few years ago. So we're kind of fields of stability through which matter is passing. And, and when you take this processual view, there are, there are lots of helpful metaphors. Music is a helpful metaphor because music is, is inherently a process. You can't have a snapshot, a music at an instance. It's inconceivable. Um, but um, there are other good metaphors of process like wave patterns, flow patterns, um, and and wave standing wave patterns and these are shimmering patterns. These patterns actually shimmer. You know, I spent some time studying Faraday wave patterns where you vibrate liquids and um, you you look at the standing wave patterns that arise, uh, complex forms that arise through the interference of uh, of regular repeating um, oscillating waves. And these are shimmering patterns. You know, these these absolutely shimmer. Uh, and so I like this metaphor of the shimmering because I'm led into these um, very fundamental processes that can inform the way that we make sense of, of processes in, in biology. Fantastic. And, and these, these metaphors and these understandings seem to be very challenging to modern industrial society. I'm wondering like how you, I mean, the implications are um, liberatory, but they're also, I would say, threatening to the status quo. Uh, liberatory in that they could lead us into perhaps a more collective, collaborative, compassionate future. Um, but I feel like also the, the status quo is, is, uh, doesn't want to be disturbed. So I'm, I'm curious, um, when you talk about the implications, like whether you get any kind of pushback from the status quo in, in terms of like this idea, these ideas that break down the autonomous individual, um, could be threatening to capitalism, for example, and property. Um, and um, so it, it, for these wider implications, what sort of responses are you getting? I've had no one, um, I mean, most people tend to be quite interested in this um, way of thinking. Um, and there's, you know, there's plenty of people talking about this at the moment, you know, I'm just coming at it from a fungal point of view, but um, it's, um, I think being invited to question these categories that we might not think about, but which turns out organize so many of our behaviors, I think that's quite um, a, a compelling activity. Um, but not necessarily that it would change the way you want things to be um, or change the way that you go about your life afterwards. You might just take a little trip, a little holiday into a kind of uh, a, a, a web of intimate reciprocal dependence and then, and then step back into a hyper individualist um, mode. In fact, it's very hard not to do that when we're living in the societies that we're living in, because at some point I do have to produce my passport or produce my driving license. And, and, and once again, my, uh, my individuality is reified. Um, and, um, 
and also there are certain ways that this concept is uh, persistent like it does feel to me like i behave as you know as some in some way a, a relevant unit of biological organization um that there is some there is some relevance to the to, to the the meanness of me um so i wouldn't want to blow that all away either um but i think yeah i think these ideas are, are, can be really um really threatening and destabilizing because if you live in a capitalist system and capitalism depends on individuals acting in their in a rationally um and if there aren't really individuals um anymore then then everything comes crashing down um so yeah i think these ideas are are, 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 are very powerful i think they can um helpfully um, erode many of the um decaying um structures that we live within that aren't fit for purpose um i think they don't necessarily lead us to a better more generative happy place um they could also lead us to all sorts of problematic places as well um but um i think they're also just recurring themes you know you don't need biologists to 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 sort of preach about this stuff to to feel like this is the case i think you know it, this is something that um these ways of 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 being and knowing and um understanding are something that we that we often experience intuitively in our lives um in the stories that we hear from the past and the ways that we imagine the ways that our minds work and the way that we like the arts and the way that we create and play um and 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 form loving relationships where that we are affected by emotions all these ways um so yes yeah, so I, i i think these are powerful ideas I, i think they could lead us towards positive change but not necessarily sure and and earlier you gave the caveat that we shouldn't think of fungi as our our saviors or something it, it seems like they're more um multivocal than that they're maybe more like a, a trickster or um Yeah, or or even again a metaphor that we that don't we don't really have yet. I just love the shimmer. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot more. Um, and yeah, and maybe fungi are providing some new metaphors to think about. Um, and just now, and in, in your book, you've talked a lot about how they do they potentially break down these these um, boundaries around the individual. And then you said, but you were sort of reified as an individual as well. Um, but I was thinking, um, also you're like surrounded by so many creative, super creative, innovative thinkers in your life, like, like your dad, Terrence McKenna, Paul Stamets, David Abram. And so I'm wondering how they have also sort of, um, well, influenced you if, if so, and, um, but also sort of extended the boundaries of, um, who Merlin is. Uh, they've they've had a, a huge role to play in extending the boundaries of who I am, as have um, you know anyone that I've ever felt close to, you know, and um, and um, you know I think we're all so affected by 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 the beings that we we live around. Um, it might be a, a pet that we have, you know, we, we might feel like this uh, our cat or our dog or our our tortoise. Um, can somehow give us a new mind to explore the world, give us new perspectives, help us to step out of our frames of reference and explore new possibilities. And um, so, yeah, so these people you mentioned have, have all been influential, and, um, but, but I almost feel uncomfortable singling them out because you know, all, all, all of those that I, I love and respect have, uh, have, have shaped me. And, and I feel like it's just a part of being a, a human, you know, that, that we are porous and, um that we um that we always thinking with and um and, and imagining with um but yes i feel very blessed to 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 have to have known to have known these folks and and, and the many others who have have taught me and who have um played with me and who have um challenged me and um and invited me into new into new places great point about how it's not as you said earlier it's not like a point to point line in a network but it's actually um All, all part of the network or yeah yeah so that we're not only imagining nodes in the network but the whole all the filaments um influencing and and connecting that's such a nice way to think about it um so 
I know that we're nearly to the end of our um, scheduled discussion time. Is there something that I should have asked you that I didn't yet? I I, I mean, having a great time. I can't think of anything that you should have asked me. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Oh, here's one other thing that I did want to ask you. Um, You write about being uh, sort of a speculative biologist, and I was super interested in that idea, um, connecting a more sort of philosophical approach with like lots of field work and lots of lab work. Um, And I wondered what sort of reception that has um, among biologists. I mean, certainly your work and and your book has such broader implications. Um, uh, But I I know that sometimes scientists don't want to push the speculation too far. So I'm just curious about that response. You know, it really depends what activity I'm engaged in. If um, If I'm writing a book for a general audience, then um, part of that process is going to be letting people into um, a more personal position, a more personal mode. And, and that's filled with speculation. We all speculate. Um, we all imagine. We all um, wonder. Um, and so if I'm sitting around at night with you know, my scientist friends and, and we're you know, having some wild conversation filled with speculations, then we'd all be speculating wildly, you know, and that's so much fun. Um, if I am writing a paper um, uh, talking about a, a, an inquiry that has been made involving certain sets of data in certain ways, um, then there might be some speculation there, but it might be you know, quite clearly marked as this is speculative, this is not what the data says, but we're thinking forwards in time. Because there's a kind of responsibility in that mode to, um, to be clear about what you're, what you're drawing from the evidence and, and what you're imagining as a future possibility. So for me, it just depends on the, on the context. Um, uh, but I don't think speculation is an option. You know, it's not, like, imagination is not an option. Like we all are imaginative, speculative beings. It's just, uh, it's so fundamental to, to, to our, our conscious minds. Um, I think it's more about how we relate to that. So when in the book, I, 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 I gently, um, I tease some of the scientific structures that, that marginalizes speculation as if it's um, as if it's something that shouldn't happen here. You know, we might do it at night, but it's not going to feature in our papers. But um, it's a quite a funny opera to, to think of people sort of separating part of themselves and um, and, and putting forward a, a, a non-speculative strict part of themselves in, in another place. Um, but it's also a misconception that that people who who aren't practicing scientists can have about scientists is that they're because cold blooded rational beings um but in fact the scientists are and have always been um emotional whole imaginative um playful beings trying to make sense of a world that was never uh, made to be catalogued and systematized so i think there are different ways that it can cut but i think it's i, I think it's a fun discussion to have uh, to return to that place of of imaginative um, mind, of, of a wandering mind, um, and then to feel a way that that unites us as uh, as humans. Yeah, absolutely, because it's that wonder and awe that prompts the questions in the first place, right? Like, I wonder what's happening here. I wonder um, how this truffle came to be here, or why the dogs love them so much, or, or whatever. Yeah, so I, I really appreciate that, how you take us um, back to wonder. And I, I loved the initial um, vignette of, of trying to follow these mycorrhizal fungi with your nose and, and just trying to follow them um, through the forest floor. Uh, I think it, it really vividly puts us into the, to the scene. Um, thank you. It's, it's been so fun chatting. But yeah, I just really want to thank you for taking the time and I know it's getting to be evening over there. Um, uh, but I, I was really stoked to chat with you today and I really appreciate you joining us here at CIS. Um, thanks for having me. It's been wonderful to chat. Absolutely. Great. Great. Thank you for listening to the CIS public programs podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. We recognize that our university's building in San Francisco occupies traditional, unceded Ramaytush Ohlone lands. 
If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.